Welcome to the Real Estate Syndication Show. Whether you are a seasoned investor or building a new real estate business, this is the show for you. Whitney Sewell talks to top experts in the business. Our goal is to help you master real estate syndication. And now your host, Whitney Sewell. This is your daily real estate syndication show. I am your host, Whitney Sewell. Uh, today, our guests is Tim and Tom Black. Thanks for being on the show. Thank you very much. How are you doing? I'm doing great. Doing great. Good to be here with you. Um, Tim and Tom are brothers are co-founders of Nepali Capital. Um, Tom is a physician, author, 13-year veteran. Thank you for your service. Uh, Tim has 30 years of upper-level management experience. His expertise is in operations, strategic planning, marketing, sales, and real estate development. And uh, guys, why don't, you, why don't you all tell us a little bit about how you got into the real estate business and how you all work together as a team, what you do. Sure. Great. Thank you for that uh, brief introduction. As you noticed, Tim is not a veteran, so I just want to point that out real quick. Thank you, Tom. <laughs> no problem. <laughs> Tom's an overachiever. He was in three of the four branches. I'm not sure where I got that from. <laughs> yeah. Three out of the four. I wish I could have done fourth, but I couldn't. Yes. All right. So how did I get involved? So this goes back fairly, um, you know, probably about, I guess, about a decade or so. Um, yeah, I came out of medical school in 2006 and went to residency in the Midwest. And around that time, the housing market had uh, had not fared so well um, as I finishing my postdoc and training in emergency medicine, um, uh, the house that I had bought three years prior wasn't exactly worth what it was. So I rented it to a resident uh, that was incoming for another three years at a at, you know, one-time lease. And so that's really where I started to get the bug for real estate, looking at the tax advantages, especially knowing that um, down the road, my income was going to change pretty significantly from, uh, from being a resident, that I was going to need some depreciation and things maybe to offset uh, to reduce my tax basis. So so then uh, moved to Texas, rented that house out and uh, started buying up houses down in the Houston market, you know, foreclosures, FHA, things like that, just sight unseen houses and, and using them as rentals. So I think by the time I had purchased about seven of them and was doing somewhat of the, uh, of the leasing myself and it became a little bit uh, uh, difficult to continue landlording. So turned those over to a company and decided that I liked that so much that I would go buy some, uh, some land right in the middle of the city and do a development, a one-off development and built a 16 unit apartment complex, uh, from the ground up. Wow. And, uh, and it, it was a lot of fun. And that's where I started realizing I would leave the emergency department, a very, very busy emergency department on East Texas. You know, I'd leave at three o'clock in the morning and I'd go out there and just think, wow, I'd sit on the tailgate of my pickup going, this is, this is great. I love this. And so it just became something to me that it became a hobby, which as medicine started to change and I was spending an inordinate amount of time in the hospital and a full partner in a, in a practice, um, it started to pull up my family time and I was seeing the writing on the wall with healthcare and at least for me and where I wanted. So I decided to resign uh, my partnership and we moved to a bigger DMA here in Dallas-Fort Worth area and uh, really started syndicating that. Didn't know what syndicating was at the time. My issue at the time was I had uh, you know years of investor database, ex-partners, friends of partners, things like that, that I knew would be interested in investing because I had proven the concept that I was actually fairly adept at real estate, um, but I had no idea what a PPM was. And that was when I learned that, the light bulb went off and the whole world opened up. And, uh, and I'll, I'll stop there because that's about 2014. And I'll let Tim jump in a little bit here. And I'll take it from that first syndication off as soon as Tim because I'm talking a little too much right now. <laughs> So when Tom was uh, looking at that dirt, 
Um, I went to visit him back in, when was that? 2011, maybe? 2011, something like that, yeah. Um, was very, very busy as the COO of a, at the time, was a public company um, getting ready to sell to a very, very large private equity firm. Um, and Tom took me out there and uh, had to put me on his shoulders to get in his uh, pickup truck because everybody in East Texas has a pickup truck with giant tires. That's all they sell in Texas, isn't That's it? That's right. Well, when in Rome, man, when in Rome, you're going to get contractors to do it. You can't show up in a BMW, dude, not in East Texas. That's right. Yeah, right. <laughs> so we went out there and he said, Tim, I'm going to build an apartment complex. And I mean, I looked at him and I said, do you need your head examined? Um, you know, as being an ER doctor and having four very young kids and, and a great wife, I just couldn't understand how he was able to put that uh, on his plate and, and, uh, you know, be able to get down the road, but he did. Um, and there's a lot of stories in between that are really funny that our parents were the management company. They would come visit, <laughs> they would come visit me in the summer times and answer the phone. Well, yes, we have a two bedroom that's leasing for $1,400 a month. Anyway, we digress. Yep. Um, so my background, uh, is very different from Tom's. Um, I have spent 32 years in entertainment working, uh, and hospitality First 18 was Six Flags Entertainment, um, and the last 13 up until 2016 as the COO for Great Wolf Resorts. Um, so what makes our uh, company very unique is, you know, Tom is very, very good at the deal side, um, looking at numbers, data, thinking about our investors and, you know, what's in their best interest and really raising money. I spend, you know, all my time kind of on the backside, you know, putting the pieces of the foundation together to build a scalable company. Um, to date, we have about $110 million worth of assets. Tom has raised uh, just over $27 million in about 19 months. Um, so we're, we're really scaling this business. I think as Tom said uh, earlier, maybe before we started recording, we're uber, uber transparent. Um, and our integrity is everything and our investors and our team absolutely come first. And it's part of our culture and deeply rooted in our DNA. Wow. So you all really hit the ground running already 110 million in assets. When did you, when did you all start this process again, the syndication business? Um, well, that goes back to, so Tim and I in, in late 2015, was it 2016? So we're, we're not even two years in as far as that. Um, but when I left uh, my former practice and I moved here and I took a directorship and I, I actually still run um, a physician group for eight, uh, an eight facility uh, contract. So we basically I manage the contract of about 80 doctors at eight different hospitals. Um, so in 2014, uh, once I, you know, discovered what this PPM was and things like that, I bought my first, uh, deal was in Arlington, uh, in Texas. And I want to say it was, it was 305 doors paid 12.4 million raised about just, just over what we wouldn't do to have that deal again. Oh God. Yeah. That was, yeah, it was timing, right? I mean, timing's half the deal in this business. So, Paid 12.4 million, raised a little over $3 million, two years and seven days later, we sold it for just under 21 million. Wow. So we brought about 9.6 million to the bottom line, um, you know, not only by driving NOI, but also we, you know, got the benefit of some cap rate compression over the last couple of years. And so, yeah, deals like that don't exist anymore, um, at least that I've tried to find. So that really, what that what happened is that really created a larger legitimacy for me and the investors that uh, we use going forward. So 
you know, 20, that was 2017. We sold Tim and I had already, you know, undergone some transformation in Poly Capital after he had left his, uh, his career. And uh, yeah, started hitting everything really hard and running. And we, we did our first deal in 2016, early, early 2016, like January. And so it's been a lot of fun. Um, you know, things are tight, as you know, out there right now. And it's, it's a lot more difficult with, uh, with cap rates falling and interest rates going up and, and people, you know, a lot of people getting into the, uh, into the real estate business. So. So, so working full time, you know, as, as a physician and all, all these things going on, I mean, obviously you didn't have tons of spare time. You know, I think you talked about how it, you know, it was taking time away from family and those types of things, but you know, and then you go into the real estate. Yeah. What helped you to manage that or give you confidence that you could make that happen? Well, uh, you know, I guess a lot of, uh, it, Tim, Tim likes to say that I like a little bit of fear in my life. Um, what I would say to that is actually leaving that practice. I actually had more time on my hands to practice then in a different area because of the style and the way in which I was practicing the hours I was doing and a lot of emotional fatigue from trauma and just a, just a very difficult, uh, difficult, very high acuity, high volume practice. So, uh, I have a super understanding wife. Um, I do a lot of, Net, you know, I guess I'm good at multitasking for the most part during that time. Not so much anymore, but uh, I tend to like a little bit of stress in my life, especially when it comes to the professional side. And so I'll stretch and, and pull things out a little bit and still manage to meet a lot of family obligations. I mean, I have more time now than I ever have in, you know, in 44 years. I'm, I'm finally to a place in my life that I'm kind of at peace with the volume I work, how I work, compensation and the whole thing. So. And Tim's smiling. So go ahead, Tim. I know you got something to say about that. <laughs> no, no, I mean, I think Tom's right. I mean, the one thing that I say frequently is most people run away from fear. Tom runs towards it. Um, and I think that's a really strong attribute, um, you know, and really also deeply rooted in our DNA. That's how we learn um, is, you know, run towards things that, that you tend to run or most people tend to run away from. Right. I like that a lot. I mean, running towards fear. If, if we're not stressed a little bit, we're really not growing, are we? We're not learning, just as you were talking about. That's exactly right. You're, you're just being complacent, right? I mean, you know, it's, it's more about a mind shift. And, you know, you can go to a lot of people doing this. I'm sure there's that Robert Kiyosaki, Rich Dad, Poor Dad mentality. I think it was, it was just something that I realized that I wasn't the typical sheep and, and I wanted to do things different. And once I proved that concept to me or to myself, and, and Tim can say this too, is it took a while, it opened up this world of seeing how um, the legitimate world that you believe around you isn't necessarily the case. I mean, it is what you make it. And, and listening to all the fodder is never a good thing. And, and when you decide to, you know, as long as the numbers look good and you have a reasonable expectation, I think it's okay. You know, if you're expecting to go be a billionaire and you're going to go do this, you know, you can get dangerous, right? I mean, you have to live and die by your underwriting. And you have to look globally. You can't microanalyze something, but at the same time, you have to be, you've got to have a little bit of trust in yourself. So tell us about something you all are working on or excited about now or a property you've recently done. Yeah, so uh, we're actually really excited right, right now. Really? So we've done about 10 multifamily deals, you know, in 18 months, and it's gotten really difficult. We, we analyze typically several hundred, you know, 220 deals a year to usually hit about 2% right around in there is about our conversion rate. Um, you know, it's become, the financing has become difficult. Um, and so we've actually pivoted a little bit. Um, and we're looking into more hospitality type, uh, type ventures, uh, given Tim's background, um, and all his contacts, um, and having been the chief operations officer of a hotel company, 
um, we've gone down a different direction, creating a hospitality company um, and, you know, looking at limited and select service hotels. The nice thing about that for us is they can be syndicated still, but there's a huge barrier to operations, right? I mean, you have to, you have to not only have a resume in real estate, but you also have to have an operations resume. So it's, it's a little bit more difficult to have that barrier to try to get to, you know, the Hilton, the Marriott, the Hyatt, they have to approve you before you can buy these things. And so it's been a lot of fun going down in there, going down that road. Um, you know, cap rates are actually really good. We're talking eight to 11, somewhere around in there. Um, and with the spreads we have, the leverage is a little bit lower, but there's, there's products out there that you can get the spread and the debt that you need to make it work. And so we're pretty excited about it. We've just started going down the last month or so after underwriting another hundred or so multifamily deals um, that it, it's just, it's, it's getting really tough and sticking to the numbers is, is an absolute. And when the numbers don't work, you got to look elsewhere and you just got to wait for the, you know, the blood to be in the streets again. And it's going to, it's coming. What are some differences in the numbers, you know, when you're looking at hotels versus multifamily residential? Um, you know, that's probably a good, good thing for Tim to answer because on the pro forma side, he's a master. I mean, I can tell you about the debt structure, um, and where the cap rates are, of course, but he's probably one to tell you about the, you know, the ADRs and things like that and what that means. Yeah. I mean, you know, the margins are very, very robust, uh, in certain categories or service of hotels. So when we think about Impala hospitality group, um, we're going to be acquiring limited and select service hotels. So when you think about what those are, right, um, Fairfield Inn, Hampton Inn, Hilton Garden Inn, uh, Hyatt Place, those major brands that um, are uber efficient when you think about labor. Um, and, you know, their points program is really, really important. You know, Marriott Rewards, Hilton, Hyatt, the, the person who's on the road traveling, you know, depends on those points to be able to take his or her vacation for their family, go to Disney or overseas. So it's really important for us to align with one of those three flags um, in, in a market and sub-market that has real demand drivers. Um, so we're, we're scrubbing Texas pretty hard looking for those, those right assets. Right. Yeah, the margins are uber efficient. Um, you know, as Tom likes to say, um, you know, when you think about Hyatt Place, they've done a really good job with that model where the front desk uh, attendant is also the person that cooks your food and will pour your drink for you so that the bar and the restaurant are right there. But that the food is, is much like Starbucks where it's prepared and all they're doing is warming up, you know, an artisan sandwich, putting it, as Tom says, on a, uh, a square, square plate and put a nice fork on there and voila. <laughs> and $13 for it. Right. Yep. So those are the types of hotels we're looking for. Nice. So how, um, what kind of response from investors going from, uh, you know, multifamily residential to hotels is, it, you know, what kind of response have you received? You know, going down the road, when you look at a couple of years ago and the amount of money that we've raised, um, you know, I haven't formally gone out there. The nice part is the, the cash on cash is actually pretty significant. So our investors tend not to be straight equity investors, knowing that, you know, it's a five year or three year and out. Um, it's more of a cash flow play. So empirically, I don't think there's going to be an issue. Um, we've got several capital groups that have approached us because of the tendency to that everybody thinks and is concerned about what the direction multifamily is going to be in, in one, two, three years. We don't really know. Uh, what I do know is, you know, cap rates going down and interest rates going up. 
that's not sustainable at some point. And we're either going to get to a hold period with a lot of sellers or people are not going to be able to make their performance anymore. Um, so I don't, I don't think we're going to have any pushback whatsoever on it. Um, and I model it very, very similar to how we do our, uh, our multifamily deals, um, with the exception of it's just a longer hold period. Um, but to, to, to really offset that longer hold period, you've got a higher cash on cash, you know, nine, 10 prefs, things like that. So it's, it's, it's pretty, pretty, uh, pretty sustainable. Most investors are going to be okay with that. Yeah. Yeah, I think so. I mean, talking to, we've got about 650 investors in our database that are 95% physicians and physicians typically aren't people that are, you know, hungry for cash flow right away. It really depends on their situation. And when you look at a nine pref tax advantaged, you know, after depreciation, you probably have a return of 11, 12% just on your cash component yearly. So, you know, that doesn't even, you know, you talk to about our, you know, an IRR catch up at the end of the sale or however we're going to structure it. It's still a, you know, it's still a two, two X after five to seven years plus. Tell me, I've met numerous physicians who um, have done similar to what you've done, you know, come into the syndication business and, and, uh, you know, speak to uh, us who aren't a physician or aren't in that field, obviously. But how, you know, how, what's the best way for us to meet high net worth individuals like that and and really show them the benefits of the syndication business and how we can help them? Sure. I mean, you being on that side and working with you know with those people, give us some tips how to do that. It, it's tough. I mean, if anybody else has tips, I'd love to hear them too. I mean, I, I I've got a heck of a time sometimes trying to break through that thought process of theirs. Um, I wrote a book called The Passive Income Physician, right there. Um, nice. And, and that helped because that was really about my awakening from, um, from, you know, looking at things mainstream to a more, uh, internal, you know, self-reliant kind of a, kind of a financial situation. It's very, very difficult because they tend to, and, and this isn't a knock against physicians myself, they tend to think that they're the smartest person in the room, which granted it, you know, maybe, or maybe not be true, but the, the biggest thing is you're trained to be a very independent thinker. You're supposed to analyze data, make a decision off a data set without any of the noise, whether that's drug companies, you know, any number of things and without, without input. And I think that really hurts us from a financial sense because it, it really, it really doesn't make any sense in that we're trained to analyze all this data yet, yet nine times out of 10, they just go to a financial advisor and they're going to pay them 2% on their portfolio and not have any input whatsoever and really not understand the drivers of that. So um, I would say it's, it's more about networking and it's about track record. Um, there's physician conferences all the time. I mean, there's all sorts of websites out there. I think the last time since I've been doing this over the last, you know, more seriously, the last four or five years, there has been a slew of physician bloggers and, uh, you know, and podcast folks that are doing this. And I truthfully, I don't know how successful they are, but I know that as we see healthcare become more and more difficult um, and more and more burnout as that increases as salaries stay flat and the red tape increases, then you're going to see more alternative physicians seeking that. So happy to help anybody, you know, point them in the right direction, certainly, but they're, they're a difficult bunch. They're a difficult nut to crack for sure. Thank you. Uh, um, Tim, you know, tell us a little bit about your all's, how you all work together on the, on the backside of the company. What does that look like? I know you're more in operations. Is that right? Maybe you can give us some pointers on, you know, how to have better processes in our business that you all developed. Yeah. And that's, that's the key. I mean, it's continuous improvement, productivity, right? And, and, you know, one of the things that we uh, emphasize is mistakes are okay to be made. Just don't make the same one twice and learn from it. Um, I've worked for organizations 
uh, over my career or leaders that you get paralyzed to make a decision for fear of a mistake because of retribution. And I learned, you know, a long, long time ago to encourage people to make a decision or, or make a mistake because, you know, a lot of health, uh, healthy things come out of it. Um, so we, you know, we've spent the latter part of two years really putting the building blocks in place and focusing on those building blocks and what that thread of consistency is through our organization. And, you know, we make mistakes. Um, there's little things that happen, you know, on a weekly basis. It's, it's, you know, what can we learn from and how can we tighten up those policies and procedures? But it all starts with your core values and your vision. And we talk a lot, a lot about our core values. And we've, we've uh, had a couple partners um, over the last three years, Tom and I have worked with that uh, shared different core values and how they think about not only our partners, but our employees and team. And um, what we found out is that, you know, those partnerships are going to fracture eventually because at the end of the day, you know, values are really important. And Tom and I definitely are in alignment on those. So, right. I would say to dovetail on that, um, real estate and syndications are, are inherently full of people that JV a lot. And I would say my biggest, uh, my biggest piece of advice would be for anybody listening, be really, really careful. Um, you, you want to excel, you want to um, go in this linear fashion. And sometimes it's, it's really important to step back and know who you're partnering with, not just for money. Cause you know, many, many mentors have told me, you know, having a great deal and a bad partner, um, you'd, re- you'd rather have a poor deal and a, and a good partner. And, and it, re- it really holds true. It doesn't matter how great the deal is, how much money you're going to make. If you're in with a bad partnership, it, it eats at your soul and it's just not a good idea. So just be very, very, very pensive about who you go into business with. My next question would be, what's the top reason most syndicators fail? Maybe that's one of them, but anything else to elaborate on? Yeah. Um, bad underwriting. Really? Bad. I think that's the first thing is not sticking to the numbers. You know, you can't make a, uh, you know, a, you can't make Dallas numbers look great in Tulsa, right? It's, it's impossible. So you got to be very, very careful about who, where, what, um, and always, always stick by the numbers. They don't lie. You know, um, that, that's the key. I think that's the biggest thing. I think, I think that I've seen people really fail as they overestimate. Yeah. And I would say number two is failure of communication. As a syndicator, we have an enormous responsibility to our investors to over communicate. I mean, uh, you know, there's nothing more personal to people than giving you 50, 75, a hundred thousand dollars and, and then going silent. Right. So we, we tend to over communicate. Yeah. For, for example, we sent out, a, you know, when hurricane Florence was hitting five days before it hit the coast, we started sending out, you know, constant contacts, emails, weather updates, you know, prior property updates, you know, when the storm hit. So we were constantly giving a daily update where it was, if we were seeing any damage, what we were doing to assess how we were taking care of it. And then once everything passed, everything, we got the all clear. Then we sent out one final email saying, Hey, here's what's going on. So just, you know, we noticed that they really appreciate that and they want to know what's going on and how that affects their investments. Nice. Any other ways uh, before we have to go, any other ways you all have recently improved your business that we could all work on? Oof, man, what haven't we done? We've, we've made, we're constantly changing and pivoting to and honing what does well. 
Um, I'm trying to think of the one thing I would, I mean, it's, it's, as I said earlier, it's continuous improvement in productivity and, you know, never relax, never stop looking to improve. Um, you know, we do, I, I think we're different because of how we communicate with our investors and the personal relationship that we have with them. Um, you know, we tend to celebrate with our investors um, we, we certainly communicate uh, things that didn't go well. Yep. You know, we have nothing to hide from. Yeah, I'd say that. It's being transparent. Nice. Yeah. Tom, Tim, you all have been some great guests. I really appreciate the value you all have added to the listeners. Will you tell them how they can get a hold of you and learn more about your business? Sure. You can uh, visit us on napalicap.com, um, which is N-A-P-A-L-I-C-A-P.com. Uh, my email address is thomas, T-H-O-M-A-S, at napalicap.com. Tim's is Tim, T-I-M, at napalicap.com. Um, that's pretty much it. We've uh, we've you know, had a great time today. I really appreciate your time and inviting us on the show. Yeah, it's been a lot of fun. Yeah, and how about your book? How do we learn more about your book? Yeah, if you reach out to me, I'm happy to drop a drop a copy in the uh, in the mail. If somebody wants to email me, um, I can get a copy out. I've got, as you can see behind me, probably the camera. I, I've got a couple couple sitting there. Um, you know, I, I, it's on Amazon, but uh, for the most part, for people that reach out, I eat, live, and breathe real estate. You know, I still do practice medicine in some capacity, but. Uh, you know, this was a hobby that became a passion that, that eventually really became my salvation for my family and myself. So uh, happy to, uh, to talk to anybody at any time. It'd be great. Awesome. Well, thank you guys so much. Really appreciate the listeners uh, listening today and we will talk to, talk to you tomorrow. Thank you for listening to the Real Estate Syndication Show brought to you by LifeBridge Capital. LifeBridge Capital works with investors nationwide to invest in real estate while also donating 50% of its profits to assist parents who are committing to adoption. LifeBridge Capital, making a difference, one investor and one child at a time. Connect online at www.lifebridgecapital.com for free material and videos to further your success.